0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigat. I think those of you who listen to the show with some regularity know that we have never considered international affairs to be our specialty. Um, We focus uh, largely on political news in Georgia, national news, um, and in those cases, primarily when it does impact uh, the state of Georgia. Um, But today, we awoke to such an ominous development uh, as we uh, learn news about the full-blown Russian attacks on Ukraine, that we can't ignore this story. Um, we will spend a little time talking about it at the top of the show, and, and again, trying to put it into the context of politics here in the United States and here in Georgia as well. Uh, clearly, the networks, the cable news operations are doing a good job covering the story, but uh, we will dive into it. Uh, to some extent, today it it was an extraordinary event to watch unfold. Uh, uh, Ukraine President Zelensky uh, said, "Russia treacher- treacherously attacked our state this morning, as Nazi Germany did in World War II." And I think that's the way many people are feeling: that the threat of war in Europe has not been with us for uh, eighty years or more. And suddenly, we're plunged back into it. Um, and on top of everything else, uh, Vladimir Putin has uh, made threats of potential nuclear uh, uh, response to, uh, to anyone who attempts to, uh, 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 in some way, interfere with what he believes is his right uh, to Ukraine. He said... Um, he said this, Putin said to anyone who would consider interfering from the outside, if you do, you will face consequences greater than any you have faced in history. All relevant decisions have been taken. I hope you hear me. Um, so this is obviously uh, the story of the day, and um, we're going to talk about it for a while with our panel. So let me introduce everybody. Tia Mitchell, Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is uh with us uh tia in just a minute we're going to talk you've been talking to george's congressional delegation um before the uh attacks began last night nevertheless have talked to them to get their reaction to how president biden has handled the situation and i'm glad you're here this morning so in a couple of minutes we'll talk about that but how are you uh doing this morning you're going to be busy uh getting response to this on the hill today i imagine
2: Yeah, and I mean, Congress is actually out this week, so you're more likely to see um, our delegation Ah, members than I will in person, but I will be following up with them to see how they respond to this, um, you know, the more visible and forceful invasion that occurred overnight.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's right. I'd I'd forgotten that uh, that they were out and back home in most cases. Um, We're joined by Leo Smith. Uh, this morning as well. Leo's a Republican strategist. He's the founder and president of uh, Engage Futures Group, which government relations organization. Leo, uh, thank you for being with us today.
3: It's my pleasure to be here on this day where democracy stands in the balance across the waters.
1: Yeah, I, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, we're welcoming back to the show uh, two people who we haven't heard from in some time and are glad to have them back. Julianne Thompson is a Republican strategist. She's also the president of Main Street Network Strategies, uh, her business. Julianne, welcome back. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Main Street Network Strategies.
0: Well, thank you for having me back, Bill. Well, I've I've owned my own business for 10 years now, and uh, I do political consulting and messaging and coalition building.
1: Okay, well, we're awfully glad to have you here on an important show today, and we welcome back Melita, Melita Easter's. Melita Easter's is the founder and the director of the Georgia Win List, an organization which, for uh, many years, has recruited uh, Democratic pro-choice women to run for office. And Melita, do you have the what's the latest count on, on how many people you've recruited over the years?
4: Well, we've helped elect 75 women, and 46 of them currently serve in the Georgia General Assembly. Thanks for having me back. It's a sad day for democracy and the people of Ukraine, but we'll have an interesting discussion.
1: I I, I think we will. Um, We're going to get into the question about women in uh, the election cycle this year, especially because we have Julianne and Melita uh, uh, with us. Um, But we'll, again, start by looking at what's happening in Ukraine. So, Tia, um, as I said, you interviewed members of the Georgia congressional delegation the other day. I think it was on Tuesday, perhaps, to ask them how they felt President Biden was doing in handling uh, the situation in Ukraine, how he was pressuring uh, Vladimir Putin, Uh, whether he was doing enough. Just give us an overview of how, how they were responding. And again, we have to point out these comments that they made to you were done before the actual attacks began in full.
2: Yeah, so you're right. On Tuesday, I checked in with our entire congressional delegation. And at the time, That was when President Biden was first starting to use the term invasion, when Russia um, authorized its military to move into those contested regions in eastern um, Ukraine. Um, But it wasn't the large-scale attack that we saw last night. Still, though, there was movement, and what we found is that the delegation seemed to be pretty unified in agreeing that, you know, the the U.S. should um, rebuke Russia, um, step up its sanctions against Russia. Um, of course, Republicans were saying President Biden should have been more forceful sooner and he shouldn't have waited until Russia authorized military action to take some of the you know the the more forceful steps that we're seeing now, and of course um, there's there's disagreement about whether the president waited too long or or focused too much on diplomacy. But I will say I was it was interesting to see the unity around. You know, yes, Russia is wrong. You know, you didn't even see those those conservatives who usually. Try to fall in line with former President Trump. They are not repeating the things he's saying where he is almost celebrating Russia, siding with Russia. You are not hearing that even from the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example. And I think that's very telling um, right now.
1: Um, The the comments from the Republicans of the delegation are, are, as you point out, particularly uh, interesting. Uh, for the reasons you said. Uh, But also, uh, we know that there's such partisan toxicity uh, in Washington these days that um, it it was, I think, uh, good to hear that at least some of the Republicans who responded to you uh, refrained from attacking Biden as they might have under almost any other uh, circumstances of an issue you brought to their attention. Um, I I think that... um, uh, You know, people like Buddy Carter said to you, now's the time to show our strength and resolve by swiftly and decisively sanctioning Moscow. We cannot turn a blind eye to Russia's dictatorial imperialistic regime. That's an example, I think, of uh, somebody who refrained from attacking the president. At the same time, uh, Austin Scott and uh, a few others uh, said essentially, why didn't you act sooner uh, on sanctions, uh, Mr. President. And, and Leo, the reason I mention all this is um, in this time of such partisanship in which we are so divided as a country, I just wonder uh, whether or not we can come together and uh, confront and, and give Biden at this difficult time uh, the support he needs to address this. Uh, because it's crucial right now, uh, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, Leo.
3: I, you know, it, it is. It, but, you know, these are very, very important issues, these issues of foreign policy, national defense, and, you know, uh, human human affairs. I mean, we're talking about the lives of people uh, under uh, Putin's uh, eyes. I mean, people are dying. And so when you're dealing with issues like this, it's important to have robust debates. And while we might be unified, we do need to be unified on the ideas of democracy, the ideas of what is the role of the U.S. in foreign policy and defending humanity. We need to have some unity on that discussion. But at the same time, there should be robust debate on what is the best policy. And Biden's cabinet, his, his team, does not seem to have much debate on what to do. And so Republicans are performing a really important role right now. And that is, what are the oppositional ideas, not just for opposition, but for different perspectives? We cannot have just complete ease about things like sanctions when it comes to people's lives. And so I think that this debate is needed.
1: What do do you mean we cannot have ease about sanctions when people's lives are at stake? Are you suggesting that what the president ought to be doing is getting advice that we need a military response?
3: I think the president has, too, has, has been handled with two too, too soft of gloves uh, uh, with his cabinet, with his team. He does not seem to have; they don't seem to have all the issues argued out before they even get in front of reporters who are asking them to verify facts, um, things like that. Um, the slow walk of sanctions, you know, um, no strategic ambiguity in face of Putin. I mean, if you're not going to have a big stick at least create some ambiguity so Putin isn't sure what you might do. And, you know, I think Biden, is. is there's, there's ample room to criticize how Biden has handled this. Now, I'm not saying he hasn't done He did some really good things with NATO and getting everybody sort of ready for this as a team. I, I'll give him some credit there with Germany and, and handling the pack pipelines. But, you know, the idea of Putin having to wonder what America might do, um, we seem to be signaling that we're confused when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to defense issues. So,
1: so, so Melita and then Julianne, Melita, uh, uh, certainly always a robust debate, which is the way that Leo described it, is, is relevant. Um, but I'm talking about something I think a little bit different. I'm talking about the way business has been done as usual in Washington these days, where one side attacks the other without regard to uh, facts, without regard to thinking through what the other side has to say. And it just strikes me that it's one thing to debate right now, but that uh, the kind of demonization that we've seen of this president uh, is is, uh, counterproductive at a difficult time. Um, So give me your thoughts on that. And then, Julianne, please weigh in.
4: Well, I think you're correct that the demonization of and politicization, political infighting is not <laughs> appropriate at this point because we all need to unify behind the Ukrainian people and the NATO alliance. And I think Biden quite correctly focused the early years of his presidency, the early months of his presidency, on restoring relationships which had been torn asunder by the previous president. What I'm hoping is that the press will vigorously pursue getting today's reactions and statements from people like Herschel Walker, David Perdue, Burt Jones, and Jody Heiss, because Georgia voters deserve to know whether these men stand more firmly behind and with the former twice peace, impeached president who supports their campaigns, or whether these men will go with the majority of the nation and unite behind the Ukrainian people and democracy. Julianne? Yes. Um, I I
0: agree with both guests, actually. Um, I I believe that that what Leo said is extremely important, that debate is necessary, and it's very important to do it without demonization. And I don't think that Leo was suggesting that, the sanctions were too weak, I think what Leo was saying, and I'm not speaking for Leo, but what I took it as um, was the comment about Austin Scott and others asking why the sanctions weren't implemented sooner was not actually an attack, but was an attempt at very fair debate. And I do think that that was fair. Um, I do think at this point in time, this invasion is going on. We need to stand united as a country. Um, united in strength and unity and resolve. And I believe the citizens of our country are united behind Ukraine, and Congress understands the importance of that on both sides of the aisle.
1: Um, So, Tia, let me throw out another idea um, and and see how you respond to it, um, and then bring everybody else in. We we know that Putin is a uh, uh, certainly always taking the pulse of uh, of the United States, looking for weaknesses, probing to see where he might take advantage of us, and I do think it's fair to ask whether the toxic partisanship that is now gripping this country, um, whether or not the ongoing. Uh, big lie notion that we have an illegitimate president in the white house uh to what extent i wonder does he see the united states is weaker than it has been at any time um in in, in many many years now we, we we're speculating uh we can't read his mind but it it does strike me that it's worth considering to what extent the divisions in this country on both the democratic and republican side have uh, given him uh, a sense that we're too weak to deal with him the way we have in the past.
2: And I, so I think that if he were to see ways to take advantage of American partisanship, he will do so, which is why it is so interesting that, at least for right now, um, Congress seems pretty unified right now in condemning Russia. Um, and I think that would be different under President Trump. These, this, What we're seeing right now with Russia shows the difference, is, is a very tangible example of we probably would be in a very different position if President Trump were still president. I'm not saying it would be better or worse, but it would be markedly different. Um, that being said, um, Putin has watched and looked for vulnerabilities in America, not just with our current President Biden. Of course, again, he took advantage of his relationship with Trump and to get softer, um, you know, softer reaction from America during those four years. But even before that, you know, he took Crimea region under the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And now that's been Mm -hmm. criticized as, you know, was the U.S. forceful enough when that happened? So we know that he's constantly looking for ways to test America, test American resolve, test American politics, and see how far he can go. This is one of those times. Um, But I do think for right now he's coming up against a unified Washington, a unified Congress and White House, at least on condemning his actions. Uh, moving forward, how Congress chooses to move forward in additional sanctions, for example, eventually, if, if Putin continues to push and it affects other nations, NATO nations, there will be pressure for American troops to engage. That could highlight some partisan divisions if it gets to that point. Um, But for right now, there is unity. And I think that does not serve what Putin would like to happen in America.
1: Uh, Melita, you want to jump in?
4: Yes, I think Tia correctly identifies the fact that Putin will exploit vulnerabilities he sees. And I think we all need to be concerned not just about the military forces we see in the streets, but the massive psychological operations um, of the Russian bot farms who infiltrate U.S. social media and sow discord. We need to be very mindful of the kinds of stories we give credence to and share and repeat and not buy into the Russian bot farm mentality that would seek to divide us.
1: Um, I I want to give you a little update Uh, uh, as we do the show live on on, uh, Thursday morning, uh, the New York Times just uh, put out a piece uh, saying footage verified by the Times now shows the most intense fighting seen so far near Ukraine's capital, Kiev, at least a half a dozen Russian helicopters uh, were spotted flying west uh, above the city. Uh, Other videos captured the helicopters attacking the airport at at, uh, Kiev. One video released by Ukraine's armed forces appears to show at least one of those helicopters being shot down. And apparently, according to the story, the time's just moved. Uh, There are videos now uh, on the Telegram app that show Russian military jets flying over the capital. Uh, Leo, uh, this is a, a grim and very tense situation.
3: Yes, it's, it's very difficult for us and in, in, in our time on this earth to really have a reference point for actually living through anything like this. Um, but studying, you know, learning what the you know, scholars like, uh, you know, Corey Shockey with American Enterprise and the you know civil military experts, uh, you know, the Ukrainians are much more capable. Um, of fighting back this time. Uh, this is going to be just a very traumatic thing that we're going to watch unfold. But we have to sort of hope that the Ukrainians have had time to receive re- support from across the world and to have had their soldiers trained even by our soldiers before we pulled them out, um, that we do see some ability to you know, stand for their, their country. And we hope we can see that as this unfolds.
1: So, Julianne, I want to go back to this notion that uh, Tia uh, first brought up, which is that uh, Republicans who have certainly uh, uh, lost no time whenever possible in in attacking uh, almost anything President Biden does um, have been uh, uh, more restrained right now. And, and Julianne, I I find that really interesting right now if I put it in the context of – Uh, The number one host of cable news, Tucker Carlson, who has spent the last couple of weeks uh, defending Putin, um, as recently as the other night on his show, he said this, Why do Democrats want you to hate Putin? Has Putin shipped every middle class job in your town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked your business? Is he teaching your kids to embrace racial discrimination, making fentanyl? Does he eat dogs? So, Julianne, it's fascinating that a guy who quite often uh, is responsible for setting an agenda for some Republicans um, isn't doing that in this case. Your thoughts on that?
0: Uh, yes, the, my husband and I were actually watching that show and saw that and looked at each other like, what is he saying? What is he talking about? Um, I, I, With regard to Congress, I they understand the importance and severity of what is going on right now. And I am very pleased that they are standing united. Um, I, I wanted to follow up on what Melita said earlier when she talked mm-hmm. about the the russian bots on social media whether it's social media or or direct hits i do hope that the western world is prepared the united states in particular offensively for the strong possibility of cyber attacks because if we are hit that is how russia is going to attack the united states and so i think melita made a very good point about being careful about what we post and what we believe to be true um concerning this war, uh, I, and, and I want to also say what a great job reporters on the ground have been doing um, covering this over the last day. Uh, they have really humanized this conflict. They have shown this once vibrant city, this working city of Kiev, and, uh, you know, people hiding underground, hiding in the subways, hiding in their basements, waiting for the bombs. I saw an interview where a, uh, a citizen ambulance driver said he thought it would be a three-day war and that at the end of the three days, the Russians would take over. And, you know, that's the way that a lot of people are just so fearful of what is happening there. And then you, you hear from others who are saying what is going to happen when, when the Ukraine is surrounded by the NATO forces, by the NATO allies, and putin is shut off then what is he going to do is he going to back down or is he going to get more aggressive and i think that we understand from his rhetoric that he's not going to back down and he's he certainly in my opinion doesn't plan to end with ukraine but there was one light of hope that was reported on today and that's um, that Poland has opened up their borders to the people of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And they're welcoming Ukrainian uh, refugees and giving them sanctuary food and shelter and saying, come stay in Poland. We will take care of you. We will watch over you until the storm passes. And we can all hope and pray and stand together, united that it passes soon. Um,
1: Thank you all for your comments um, on this dire international uh, situation. Um, we're going to uh, take a break and move on and uh, talk about uh, domestic politics on the show again in a couple minutes. Um, but I do think um, maybe uh, Melita already indicated it. When we do come back, it's probably worth looking at uh, whether or not, uh, what kind of impact uh, this incursion by the Russians, these attacks could have um, as the election cycle plays out. So we'll do that and a lot more on Political Rewind after this break. Tia Mitchell of the AJC, Leo Smith, Republican consultant and president of Engaged Futures, um, Melita Easters, founder of the Georgia Win List, and Julianne Thompson, a Republican strategist and uh, uh, founder of Main Street uh, Strategies, join us uh, today. Um, because we have a couple of women on this show who have worked in the trenches uh, to uh, encourage women to run for office uh, in Georgia and beyond, I really want to turn to where we stand with, uh, with women in the election cycle uh, today. And of course, uh, uh, Leo and Tia, I wanted you to welcome uh, to uh, weigh in on this as well. But but let me start if I might, Melita, by by making the point, of course, that uh, the biggest name among women running for office in Georgia is clearly uh, Stacey Abrams. Um, but I will also say at the same time, Julianne, um, Republicans, are uh, nationally are uh, boasting of the fact that they have recruited more women and more people of color to run for office across the country than in the past. So, Melita, let's start by looking at the fact that Stacey Abrams is one of six African-American women in six states running for governor across the country. That's a powerful uh, uh, phenomenon.
4: It is a very powerful phenomenon, but I will say that I believe Stacey Abrams is the most powerful of those six. Only one other of those six women, the gubernatorial candidate in Iowa, Deidre DeGier, has been endorsed by the national PAC, Emily's List, along mm-hmm. with 11 other women gubernatorial candidates, or as part of an 11 gubernatorial races that Emily's List is following. So that tells me that Stacey Abrams and the uh, Iowa candidate are the two strongest, and Stacey by far – because she has more than 100,000 donors, because many of those donors are monthly donors who will continue to give to her campaign, she has the strongest gubernatorial um, campaign for any candidate challenging an incumbent anywhere in the nation. And so that guarantees that Georgia will continue to be the center of the political universe, so to speak, as national and international eyes turn to see whether Georgia will elect its first black female governor.
1: Uh I can see you've got the ball. Uh, give us a quick rundown on how many women you have recruited. How many, how many women right now do we have running for legislative offices in the state of Georgia?
4: I can't say precisely because some of them have not yet announced. We, okay. Winlist, had 54 women endorsed in the 2020 cycle, it was a record setting number of women on the ballot. Qualifying is still a week and a half away, and, and we're still in talks with a lot of women. I will say that we are all, who, all of us who are recruiting on the Democratic side, are very, very pleased with the quality of the women we're talking to, and we're still twisting some arms for those that are um, wavering about whether to get in a race.
1: So, Julianne, on this show in the past, when you and Melita have appeared together, you have bemoaned the fact <laughs> that you only hope that you could, uh, you personally and Republicans in general in Georgia, could do as good a job of recruiting women to run for office as Melita's done on the Democratic side. Where do things stand now for women in the Republican Party here?
0: Well, looking at the national landscape, it's it's so exciting to see 253 Republican women who have filed to run for Congress across the country. And as the article stated, 228 people of color um, who have filed to run for office um, in the in the GOP as well. And, of course, I see these numbers, and I'm thrilled that this is happening, because people like myself and, and others, like Eric Cannonblad who is a, a guest on the show sometime, who works with Winning for Women, um, we've been trying to get women... To run for office um, as Republicans for for a long time, so it's really really great to see that this is happening. Um, It's an exciting start, but it's just a start, and you know we need more women and more people of color to be recruited, well funded, and prepared to win. Um, People who are likable, people that that real people can identify with. And that's why I think it's so important that we have more diversity when it comes to people that are that are running for office as Republicans. Um, I'm very excited and I wanna congratulate my friend, uh, Bonnie Rich, who is a state representative um, and she's actually my representative. And she was elected as chairman of the Georgia House Republican Caucus. So that is a, a huge victory for a female candidate um, as well as Dan Jones, who has been reelected as uh, president pro tem of the – or as pro, a speaker pro tem of the yeah. state house. So that's very exciting as well. And then we have three women running in Congressional District 6, Megan Hanson, Susie Boyles, and Mallory Staples. Um, and, and it's just – it's a very exciting thing in Georgia, and I see wonderful things happening.
1: Um. We, there's no question that Jan Jones, uh, Speaker pro tem of the House, has been a power uh, in the Georgia legislature for quite some time now. Uh, Tia, um, women do still are not represented in uh, uh, relation to their percentage of the population in the United States Congress. But clearly, uh, you are surrounded by more women on the Hill than ever before,
2: yeah, and of course, you know, I pay special attention to Georgia's congressional delegation, where the yep. number of women has increased in recent cycles. That being said, of course, um, most of those women are Democrats. The Republicans have won, in Marjorie Taylor Greene, and thinking ahead just to this year's election, It doesn't look like there will be any more Republican women elected from Georgia. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is likely to be reelected, but in some of those open seats, um, such as the 10th District or even in the 2nd District where Republicans are hoping to take the seat from Sanford Bishop, the leading Republican candidates are men. And um, and definitely, um, I think there is... um, um, a black male running against Stanford Bishop in the second district, um, but again he would have to win a primary there. So you know, it, it's interesting. I think the I think the Republican Party takes recruiting candidates of color very seriously, but they have still struggled to translate that to ensuring candidates of color win these um, federal races. You know. Um, Not just in the House, but extremely so in the Senate, where both Republicans and Democrats, quite frankly, have had problems getting people of color in those U.S. Senate seats. Right now, we have two black senators, one Republican, one Democrat out of 100, and no black women currently.
1: Um, Leo, Democrats would say that in drawing new uh, legislative districts and congressional districts, the Republicans uh, this year, this past year, uh, went out of their way to make life more difficult for three women who have been in (laughs) office. Uh, Michelle Au, Senator Au, lost her seat. And uh, that's gotten a lot of attention, especially, again, from Democrats who say this is, uh, just targeting a woman, not just changing the line so a Republican will win, but making sure that a woman uh, it doesn't have that seat. And then, of course, we've got that redrawn 6th and 7th district, which has now forced Lucy McBath, if she wants to stay in Congress, to take on Carolyn Bordeaux in a primary match in the 7th. Uh, talk about that.
3: Yeah, Republicans and probably Democrats who master gerrymandering as well would say it's not personal, it's just business, (laughs) you know. And uh, we look at the sixth, uh, Lucy McBeth uh, doing business, uh, moved over to the seventh. And that's an interesting uh, sort of segue from what you said earlier uh, at the break. You mentioned what is the impact of foreign policy on and And so now we have Carolyn Bordeaux and Lucy McBeth, two Democrats running against each other, but Bordeaux sort of taking a very hard stance that challenging Biden uh, on whether or not he's doing enough on foreign policy. She's trying to make a mark for herself against um, an incumbent congressman from another congressional district. That's going to be very interesting to watch how that all unfolds.
1: Um, Well, we should point out, too, in a more broad way, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux has been willing to stand against the progressives in the Democratic uh, uh, Party on a number of uh, of the big initiatives that President Biden has put forward. it's because she recognizes that although uh, Gwinnett County, uh, which is a large portion of that district, is more blue than it ever has been before, you still got to watch yourself in terms of how far to the left you go, right? Leo.
3: Indeed you do. And and that's what makes that so fascinating. Um, We're seeing just like we see um, sort of uh, a lessening of Trump's impact with sort of his 30 percent hardcore base that sort of like a minority ruling the majority in the Republican Party. We've seen that progressives, the far left in the Democrat Party sort of is losing some of their The loudness of their voice is having less impact as well. So we're going to see how that plays out as we get closer to 2022's uh, election. Melita? Well, I think what we
4: may see in that um, congressional fight between Bordeaux and McBath is the fact that Donna McLeod may very well send the two of them into a runoff and prolong the fight. But the other thing is that in Gwinnett County, we see two Democratic sitting women dr rebecca mitchell and Shelley hutchinson state reps drawn into the same house district <laughs> even though adjoining on either side of them there are open seats and so that's another punitive against women swipe in the general assembly i'm happy to say that um, dr michelle al is going to run for an open house seat so mm-hmm. the voters will have the chance to return her to the general assembly and her perspective as the only Democratic physician in the General Assembly is much needed there, but Rebecca Mitchell, um, also a Ph, a medical doctor um, in epidemiology, and Shelley Hutchinson, a licensed family therapist, will be forced to run against each other. But frankly, this is a better outcome than Democratic women had in 2012, because then six districts had pairings of Democratic women with colleagues. Five of them resigned rather than run against colleagues. And Pat Gardner challenged and defeated her Democratic colleague and went on to serve another four terms before she retired. So as much as we didn't like the outcome of redistricting this year, we were grateful that Republicans had to deal with dramatic Democratic shifts and save their own skins rather than going after ours.
1: Um, Julianne Leo already made the point, but uh, Republicans would say, "Look, it isn't. This is business. Uh, this isn't about men or women. This is about drawing lines uh, that clearly Republicans want to advantage them in the same way Democrats have done that uh, in the past when they were in uh, power." But the fact that um, women can point to other women who have lost their uh, likely seats over this. It, it, I'm not sure how that plays into an election cycle when the votes of women are going to be so important.
0: Well, I think that that's just another call for Republicans to recruit more women and more people of color to be competitive in those districts where people need representation. Um, as, as far as uh, the the specific races in Gwinnett are concerned, yes, Gwinnett, most of Gwinnett, as you said, is predominantly blue right now um i live in Gwinnett. uh but i have i am no longer in the seventh i'm being moved from the seventh to congressional district number nine so i'm in a, a safe republican district now uh but it's but it's been very strange i mean uh congressional district seven has been part of my life for so long my husband was actually before he became the national committee man he was the uh congressional district seven chairman for a decade. So, you know, it's, it's very strange to be redrawn, but that is what the majority party that is in control uh, does, you know, what redraws their districts. And um, that's done on both sides. And I think that they worked very hard to be as fair as they could. And um, with regard to what you said about about females, like I said before, it's just another call for Republicans to recruit more females yeah. and more people of color.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, so Tia, it occurs to me uh, that uh, Julianne uh, is feeling what some of the people in Cobb County are feeling about suddenly learning that Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> is now their uh, member of Congress, Tia.
2: Yeah, and it's just not Cobb County. Um, there are people who are in... South Metro Atlanta, who are now in the 10th Congressional District, currently represented by Jody Heiss, but to be represented by a new lawmaker, um, likely a Republican. Um, you know, we know that more of Athens was put in the 10th district. So um, the Republicans in, in creating maps, and we know, you know, Lucy McBath's 6th district was was um, changed. Uh, Barry Loudermilk's 11th district continues to be a conservative-leaning district, but pulling in parts of metro Atlanta. Um, Drew Ferguson's 3rd congressional district continues to be a conservative district that includes parts of metro Atlanta. I say all that to say the the reason why this happens is that, as we know, Republicans control the map-drawing process, and what they're doing is you know, helping to ensure that the seats they control, that they control as many congressional seats as possible. And one of the ways they do that is packing um, a certain amount of Democratic seats and then ferreting out a lot of um, metro Atlanta in small portions to other suburban, rural, exurban seats. Yeah. So that's what we're I, seeing I, I, a lot I,
1: of. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on your last words. Uh, Leo, i got to get to a break, but one last quick comment from you before we do.
3: No, I just wanted to hear Julianne, Tia, and Merlita's ideas on, you know, Biden has his uh, SCOTUS um, appointment that is about to happen. He's nominating all black women. I wonder how that animates uh, female voter turnout and women's interest in running for office.
1: Leo Smith, I thank you. I'm going to start the next segment by giving people a chance to comment on just that. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. We've got a few minutes left on Political Rewind. I'm really hoping to get two uh, uh, issues in before we leave. Leo Smith wants to know, Julianne Thompson, uh, how you think— uh, the president's decision uh, to nominate, and we'll soon hear who it is, an African-American woman to the Supreme Court, will play out with voters. Uh, give us your thoughts on that. Melita and Tia then weigh in.
0: Well, I'm sure that it will mobilize um, female voters on the Democratic side, particularly African-American female voters. Uh, but what I'm hoping is that he nominates a conservative African-American female Supreme Court justice to mobilize Female voters on the Republican
2: side. Dream on.
1: Melita?
4: Dream on, Julianne. (laughs) I think it will uh, absolutely mobilize voters, and I do think that women will very carefully watch how um, senators handle this nominee in the questioning process when she goes before the Judiciary Committee. And I also think that it's appropriate to mention that it's a regrettable to me that um, Leah Sears Ward never made it past the short list mm-hmm. in prior administrations yeah. because it would be a wonderful Supreme Court if she were serving on
1: it. She was. She has been a distinguished jurist in Georgia for many, many years. I'm glad you mentioned her name. Um, uh, so, Tia, uh, we know that some Republicans have uh, attacked the president, claiming this is like an equal um, opportunity uh, choice. It's, but we have to say, Mitch McConnell said the other. He sees no problem with that. It's it's perfectly fine uh, with him. So, I mean, the question I think Melita mentioned, or, or, or maybe Julianne did, I, I, I frankly don't know, but but Republicans are going to have to be very careful how they respond to whoever uh, is nominated, right?
2: Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, the the smart Republicans who don't want to make this a race issue, especially when you look at the list of over, you know, all the Supreme Court justices in history and there isn't one black woman on them. And in the history of the United States, You know, even if you're conservative and say black women have been, you know, five or 10 percent or 15 percent of the population of whoever has lived in the United States since its inception, well, they're not even five percent of the Supreme Court nominees. They're zero. So I think it's a hard argument to make that like it's somehow wrong to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. So what they are doing is they are backing the most conservative of the black women whose names are kind of out there as finalists, and that's um, Judge Childs. She is considered, um, and I mean conservative on a spectrum related to the other finalists, so to speak. So that's what I think we'll hear from Republicans. They won't necessarily say it's unfair, it's an affirmative action to select a black woman. What they're going to do is look for the one that they think will be the least progressive.
1: Okay, um, Leo, we've only got a few minutes, but I'm going to start you on a new subject. Um, How are voters going to respond to the legislature, which is now... Pushing out so many uh, cultural hot button issues, banning critical race theory, banning obscene materials in schools, um, insisting that uh, uh, people, that students participate in a sport based on their birth certificate gender. all of those cultural issues that are important. If you're a Republican running in a primary, the question is what happens when you get to a general and how are women going to respond to that since that's been the theme today?
3: Well, I think these cultural issues are very galvanizing for women because I mean, they're the people who create families. I mean, I can do a mine, I have a minor role in that, but they have a major role in creating rights. And I think, uh, They're going to have a lot to say about this. I think that we are playing with fire as we sort of use these cultural wedge issues to animate our our elections rather than actually good policymaking. And I also want to challenge policy organizations and think tanks in Georgia who have sort of like in the nationalization of politics, have sort of taken a back seat to actually arguing these legislative issues. I want to challenge us on that.
1: Um, Melita and then Julianne.
3: Well, I think by and large,
4: women and and women and, and and people in general do not approve of banning books or whitewashing the way t- history is taught in the public schools, and so I think women in particular will be taking a careful look at these issues. I also think that people are going to care about quality of life issues as they present themselves around the Rivian plant and the fact that yesterday the state announced it would control the local rezoning process and supersede that process. So I think women who care about the quality of life will be greatly troubled by that decision and the governor's dictatorial approach to it.
1: Julianne, how dangerous is it for Republicans who are in primaries, a so David Perdue versus Brian Kemp, to be clinging to those culture issues when they've got to face general election voters in the fall? Again, especially women.
0: Well, as we all know, as we get past the primary, they'll pivot more to the center when they get back to the to the general election, just as Democrats pivot more to the center after the uh, the primary as well. Um, I, I think that it depends on which of the issues. I mean, this, this is a whole bag of issues. So, I mean, it depends on which one that you're talking about. If you're talking about masks from schools, if you're talking about banning obscene materials, if you're talking about parents' Bill of Rights, and, and specifically certain things under those parents' Bill of Rights, I think that if you ask John Q. Citizen or Jane Q. Citizen when you're sitting on the bleachers watch, watching your child play sports, which is where you get the real uh, take on how people feel, it, you'll find that there are a lot of – you do, you do – you'll find that there are a lot more people that are in favor of some of these things um, than what you think. Um, but this is this is a whole bunch of issues, and I think you have to take it issue by issue uh, when you're talking about how it's going to affect the general election.
1: Uh, fair, fair point. Very fair point. Um, we are completely out of time. I wish we weren't. I'd love to have another hour uh, with this panel, <laughs> but unfortunately, NPR just doesn't want to give me that hour right now. So Julianne Thompson, Leo Smith, Melita Easter's and uh, Tia Mitchell, thank you for a Terrific conversation on a very difficult day uh, in uh, our country and in the world. Um, we'll be back, of course, with a brand new show tomorrow. Uh, before we go, let me tell you, we put out a new edition of the Political Rewind newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday. goes right to your inbox, and I'd love to have you subscribe. You can do that by going to gpb.org newsletters. And you'll find us there. Among the the political content, you'll also find a little item about Jason Aldean and his appearance at a fundraiser for a candidate for lieutenant governor out in uh, uh, Athens the other night. Um, And um, one of uh, Jason Aldean's uh, big hits is a song called The Truth, which is something we believe in on Political Rewind all the time. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jesse Neiswanger, Sam Burmist dawes Natalie Mendenhall for your work on the show see you all tomorrow and in the meantime take care and please stay healthy bye bye everybody at a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find
4: NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.